Welcome to the Fairfax Church Podcast. We're a community in Fairfax, Virginia, following Jesus. We upload new messages every week, and to learn more about us, visit us at fairfax.cc. Enjoy the message. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, I hope that you had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving, Friendsgiving, whatever term that... Uh, you have given that. I hope that it was a really, really great time. Uh, we're, we're in the final week of this series that we have been uh, doing in Job. And uh, it's been a hard series, a difficult series. I, I think a helpful series. I know it's been helpful for me just going through this. And uh, I'm excited about uh, where this all kind of wraps up today. But but before I launch in to uh, the, final, the final message in this series, uh, I want to just um, remind you of something that's coming up in the life of our church. In, on, on December 6th, uh, we're going to have what's called a Blue Christmas, 7 o'clock evening service, and uh, we're calling it a service of lament. And, and the idea behind it is that all of us have experienced loss, all of us have experienced painful circumstances. I mean, going through Job, uh, one of the reasons that I think I've gotten so many emails, so many people that have talked to me and said, this is so helpful, is that we all relate to this stuff. All of us have experienced some really, really difficult things. Some of us are maybe even going through some of those things right now. And what this service, uh, Blue Christmas, is all about is about acknowledging that, lamenting that, uh, the Bible talks about the lament, the, the naming of our, the naming of the things where uh, we've experienced pain, woundedness, loss, whatever it is, the naming of that and the giving those over to the Lord. And I've said this on so many occasions that, that in reading through the Psalms, uh, you are reminded that lament is inextricably connected to praise that you cannot fully praise unless you have fully lamented. And that's why when you read through the Psalms, so often the psalmist is like giving a lament and then breaking into praise. And sometimes it's in the very same chapter where there is this deep lament and you go, oh my goodness, how is he going to get out of this? And he just breaks into glorious praise and you begin to realize it's the lament that leads to the praise. Uh, I talked as we were uh, going toward Easter this year. We had our first ever Good Friday service. And it was a powerful, powerful service. And I talked about how you can't really celebrate Easter, the, the, the joy of the resurrection, until you enter into the pain of the cross. And in some respects, that is the same thing, same idea behind Blue Christmas is that you really cannot enter fully into the joy of the incarnation and the joy of Christmas until you have fully kind of embraced and dealt with the losses that, that all of us have experienced in our lives. It's going to be a powerful service, a lot of sharing that will happen, some individuals that will be sharing. And I think it will be an opportunity for us to walk through, all of us to kind of walk through all of those kinds of things and experience God's healing power in our lives. So I hope that you'll put that on your calendars, December 6th, uh, Blue Christmas, 
uh, here at Fairfax. All right, so we're in the final week of our study in the book of Job. And just a little reminder again, Job was a guy that had uh, everything going for him. Um, he had, oh, we just I realized we had a light going out, a bunch of lights going out. Is that, is that something we can control? Is that something I should ignore? Is that something that is a warning sign that we should be aware of? Is that something I should shut up about? Okay, so, so just a reminder that Job is this guy that had everything going uh, for him, and uh, he, he was wealthy, had a big family. He was a man of God. He was successful. Uh, he, he, he had lots of resources, lots of influence, and then all of a sudden, everything is just gone, and um, he loses everything, his family is all killed, and then eventually his, his health begins to deteriorate significantly. And, and the thing that, as we read through the, the book of Job, and we've kind of, I know we've kind of skipped through different chapters, but as you read through the book of Job, chapter after chapter after chapter, we see Job basically confused and angry. Like, he's been crying out to God, he's been arguing with his friends, and, and there are these two things, basically, that Job wants. These are the two things he keeps coming back to over and over and over again. One is that Job wants an explanation. <laughs> he wants an explanation. Like, he wants to know why he's suffering. And as hard as the suffering is for Job, the hardest thing is suffering without an explanation of why he is suffering. And I think a lot of us can identify with that at some level. Uh, when we go through really hard stuff, like we want to know, like, what's the meaning behind all of this? We want to know, like, what's the explanation for why we are suffering? And, and, and so oftentimes, like, we jump to some kind of explanation because it's just like it's helpful for us. Like, I'm going through this so that, that God can teach me something. Obviously, there's something I need to learn, and so God is using this to teach me something. Or I'm going through this to help me grow in my faith. Or I'm going through this to help someone else grow in their faith. Or I'm going through this to, to make me stronger in some way, whatever it is. And sometimes, you know, like if we don't have a clear answer of like why we're going through what we're going through, we have friends, like Job's friends, who are more than happy to tell us why we're going through what we're going through. And so that's the first thing. Job just wants an explanation. Give me an explanation, God. I just need an explanation. The second thing that Job wants is vindication. He doesn't just want an explanation of why he's going through what he's going through. He wants vindication. Job is convinced that his friends are wrong about his suffering being because of something that he has done, something bad that he's done. He's not willing to accept that this is his fault. He's not willing to accept that this is the result of something that he has done. He's absolutely convinced that he doesn't deserve to be going through what it is that he's going through. And Job is convinced that if he can just get an audience with God, if he can just talk to God, if he can just hear from God, then he will be completely and totally vindicated by God. 
vindicated in the eyes of the world, and maybe more importantly to Job, vindicated in the eyes of his friends, who he, he is convinced is so wrong in their assessment about why he's going through the things that he's going through. And so for 37 chapters, God is silent as Job questions why he's suffering and as Job defends himself to his friends and to God. And then you get to chapter 38 and God speaks. This is the first time other than the dialogue we hear in the first two chapters that heavenly dialogue that takes place between God and Satan. This is the first time now that we hear God speak. Chapter 38, God speaks. In fact, God speaks for four straight chapters. Chapter 38, chapter 39, chapter 40, chapter 41. It's just God responding to everything. But what God says is completely and totally unexpected to Job. Like the conversation doesn't go the way that Job imagined it would go. You know how, you know, sometimes you go, if I could just, if I could, you know, if when I get to heaven, this is the question that I'll ask, or if I could just, if, if God could, if I could just hear from God, um, you know, this is what uh, I would talk to him about, this is what I would say, this is what I need to hear. Like Job has all of these expectations about what it's gonna be like when God finally gives him an audience. All these expectations about what it's going to be like when he finally hears from God. What it's going to be like when God finally speaks to him. And the same is true for us. Like all of us want to hear from God. All of us long to hear God's voice. Like we, we sing songs about that. We, we pray about that. You know, I just need to hear from God on this issue. I, I just need for God to speak to me. But sometimes... When God speaks, sometimes when we do hear from God, the message is not the one that we anticipated that it would be. And that was certainly true for Job. Job imagined, for 37 chapters, Job imagines that his audience with God would be like a courtroom. That's the image that he uses over and over and over. That his encounter with God, that when he gets an audience with God, it's going to be like a courtroom. That God would be the judge and Job would eloquently make his case before God. And then God would like take the witness stand in the courtroom. And Job would ask all of these penetrating questions to God like a really really good attorney and get to the bottom of why it is that he's going through what he's going through that's the image that Job has in his mind of what it's going to be like when he finally when he finally has this audience with God when God finally speaks and the result would be that Job would get all of the explanations that he needed, that he would get the vindication that he so desperately desired. But when God speaks, it's nothing the way that Job imagined it to be. In fact, instead of Job asking God all of these questions, if you know anything about the end of Job, it's God asking Job all of these questions. 
And it begins this way, verse 1, verse 30, in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, out of the hurricane, out of the gale force wind. And he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. That would get your attention. And I will question you, and you will answer me. Now, when God asks, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge, the word counsel basically means plan there. Job has basically been saying all along to his friends and to God, God, your plan doesn't make sense. Like what I'm going through doesn't make sense. Like whatever it is that your plan is for me, like what I'm experiencing doesn't seem to be in alignment with that. Your plan doesn't seem to make sense to me. None of this makes sense. And God says, well, maybe before we start talking about the integrity of my plan, we should start with talking about your limited perspective. And then he just starts asking Job questions. I won't read all of them. It's four chapters. But here's how he starts. Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely, Job, you know that. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or, or laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and when I set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. And the questions just go on and on and on for four chapters. In fact, <laughs> I went through and counted the number of questions that God had. I was just curious. I was reading through these four chapters. I was like, man, these are a lot of questions. Like, how many questions is God asking Job? 104 questions. 104 questions. Just rapid fire. Just question after question after question after question. And, and Job is not able to answer any of them. And what God is basically saying is, Job, I love you but you really don't have the perspective to evaluate my comprehensive plan. Like you don't have the perspective to really, to really evaluate like my work in the world. That's not the perspective that you have. Remember last week, we, um, in chapter 28, Job asked this question, where does wisdom come from? And the answer is in verse 23 where it says, God understands the way to it. God understands the way to wisdom and he alone knows where it dwells. And, and as you read that whole passage, you're, you're reminded as we talked about last week 
that the world is like this beautiful tapestry. I, I, I used the term quilt last year, but re, uh, last week, but really the better term is tapestry. The world is like this beautiful tapestry that's woven together. But God is the only one who sees the pattern for the tapestry. God is the only one who has the perspective of looking down on the tapestry and seeing the top of the tapestry. What we see is the underneath of the tapestry. And underneath the tapestry are all of these twisted threads and all of these knots that are part of the tapestry. But from that perspective, you can't really see the beauty of the tapestry. You can't really see the pattern of the tapestry. You can't really understand the tapestry. And that that is the way that we interact with God because God is the only one who sees the whole pattern. God has a perspective that we just don't have. And scripture is constantly reminding us of that. According to NASA, Astronomers estimate that the universe contains, this is is an unbelievable number, that the universe contains up to one septillion, septillion stars. That's a one, in case you're trying to figure that, this is a one followed by 24 zeros. And just to give you some perspective on the size of that number, um, there are 12 zeros, a one followed by 12 zeros in uh, a trillion. So a septillion has 12 more zeros at the end than a trillion. A septillion is a trillion trillions. Get your mind around that. Kind of our national debt. Okay, no. Uh, A trillion trillions, okay? The Milky Way, the galaxy that we're a part of, contains a hundred billion stars. Just this this little galaxy contains a hundred billion stars. And the psalmist says, God determines the numbers of the stars and calls each one of those septillion stars each one of those trillion, trillions stars calls each one of them by name. And John, as he begins his gospel, declares, through him all things were made. The trillion, trillion stars were all made through Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. By asking Job all these rhetorical questions, God is reminding Job that God is way bigger than this little box that apparently Job has tried to put him in. God is someone we can know, but God is not someone we can figure out. And and understanding the difference between those two things is so important because they are different. Knowing God and figuring God out are two very, very different things. That you can know God intimately. You can be in a vibrant, intimate relationship 
with the God of the universe, but you will never figure God out. And that's what God is reminding Job of here. And the truth is, we, we really don't want a God that we can figure out. Like that's really not the kind of God that we desire because a God that you can figure out, a God who is not bigger than your finite reasoning capabilities is not a God that you can worship. It's not a God that you can trust with your whole life. It's not a God that you can dare surrender your life to. It's not a God who can save you. It's not a God who can rescue you. It's not a God who can redeem you. You'll never experience peace in the midst of the most painful events of life until you embrace the reality that God is way bigger than your wildest imagination. You have to see a God-sized God in order to experience peace in the midst of really, really tough stuff. Because if you can say, God knows, I may not know, but God knows and I trust God, then you don't have to know. And you can rest in his knowledge. You don't have to try to rest in your knowledge. You can rest in his knowledge. Let me just say, you know, this is a congregation filled with a lot of smart people, a lot of degrees. Um, I've got my doctorate. You know, we've, we've, there's a lot of folks with their doctors, masters, all that kind of stuff. Like really, really smart. Let me just say, I'm so thankful that I don't have to trust in my knowledge. Like I'm so thankful that I am able to trust in God's knowledge because when I trust in God's knowledge, I can find a peace that I never find when I'm trying to trust in my knowledge. Like when I try to trust in my knowledge, it does not lead me to peace. It leads me to worry. It leads me to anxiety. It leads me to a lot of things, but it does not lead me to peace. There is something, there is something about being able to say, God knows and I trust God so I can rest in his knowledge. Now here's, here's where the story really gets interesting. Those who are, are reading the book of Job actually know something that Job doesn't know. We all know about the heavenly dialogue that took place between God and Satan that started this whole chapter where there's this dialogue and, and, and Satan basically said, Job just is faithful to you because you do nice things for him and that, that kind of starts the whole thing. And when God shows up, he could have certainly explained about all of that heavenly conversation. He could have explained that to Job. He could have explained Everything He could have told Job how all of this was initiated by Satan. He could have told Job that this was all Satan's idea. Satan was the one who caused this. This was not from God. God did not cause this. God was not the causational agent. Satan was the causational agent in all of this. Job's looking for an explanation, and this would have been the perfect chance for God to give him the explanation that he's looking for. 
but he doesn't. God never gives Job four chapters, four chapters of responding to Job. And God never gives Job an explanation. God never gives Job any reason for why he's going through what it is that he's going through. And I think the point that the author of Job is making here is crystal clear. God's agenda, God's agenda is not to try and explain things to Job. Like that's not his agenda. He doesn't show up after 37 chapters and talk for four chapters so that he can thoroughly explain things to Job. That's just not his agenda. Why? Because God's desire for Job is not that he would figure everything out. That's just not his desire for Job. Not that he would figure everything out. God's desire for Job is that he would trust the God who has figured everything out. And that's God's desire for us as well. That we would trust the God who has figured everything out. Like God's desire for me, God's desire for you, is not that you'll figure everything out. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask questions. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be inquisitive. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand things. That doesn't mean any of that. It's just that God's ultimate agenda for us is not that we figure everything out. Because if that was God's agenda for us, if that was the primary motivating, the motivation between what God was doing, then it would be a constant failure. Because just when we think we've got it figured out is when we realize we don't have anything figured out. It's like when you read a book on some topic and you get to the end of the book, and you go, wow, I've, got, I've mastered that topic. And then you look at the bibliography at the back of the book. The 150, 250, 350 sources that you haven't even touched yet. And all you do when you get to the end of the book is realize what you do not know. That that's the, that's the reality if God's agenda was just that we would be able to figure it out like we would never be able to to reach that we will never be able to figure out. But that's not God's agenda. God's agenda is not that we would figure thing out, everything out. God's agenda is that we would trust the one who has figured everything out. And trusting the God who has figured everything out is what ultimately gives us peace. It's trusting the God who has figured everything out that keeps us from growing bitter. It's trusting the God who has figured everything out that keeps us from being destroyed when we go into difficult experiences where we have challenging experiences that, that we don't understand and that are really painful. Like it's trusting the God who has figured everything out out that keeps that from destroying us. Now, Job didn't just want an explanation. Remember the other thing that Job wanted? Job wanted vindication. 
Job wanted the world to know, and he wanted his friends to know, that God was a just God, but in this case, God had gotten it wrong. In this case, an innocent man was suffering. In this case, God wasn't being just. In this case, in his case, God was being unjust. And Job wanted the chance to make his case before God. That's why one of the questions that God asked Job in chapter 40 is this. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Job, would you condemn me in an attempt to justify you? Like, is that what you're doing here? Are you condemning me in an attempt to justify yourself? Now, Job, of course, has everything wrong. He, let me just list the thing. He thinks God is causing his suffering. And he's not. He thinks suffering is always the result of God's justice. And it's not. He thinks that he has been unjustly accused by God of wrongdoing. And he has not. So when God asked Job, would you condemn me to justify yourself? The answer is yes. Like that's exactly what Job is doing. He is condemning God in an effort to justify himself. In an attempt to justify himself, he is, he is putting blame on God. And when Job realizes what he's doing, that's when he repents. Now, it's interesting, 37 chapters, and his friends have, been keep, have kept telling Job to repent. Job, you need to repent, you need to repent, you need to repent, you need to repent. Because obviously you've been doing something bad. And that's the reason that you're suffering. You need to repent. And Job doesn't repent. He doesn't repent. He doesn't repent. doesn't repent. doesn't repent. And then God shows up. And he says, Job, I don't want to talk about. I want to talk about like whether. What you're experiencing is because of something you've done. That's. That's not it at all. I want to talk about what it is that's motivating you to say that you are willing to condemn me in order to justify yourself. That you're willing to say God got it wrong in order to somehow make yourself feel better about things. And all of a sudden, all of the light bulbs begin to go on. And Job says, oh my God. That's exactly what I've been doing. And that's when Job repents. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you, Job, will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes, my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And when Job says, I repent, he literally means, I, I take it back. <laughs> I take it back. I take back what I've said. I take back what I've been saying. I take back my demand for an explanation. I take back my demand for vindication. When he sees how big God is, Job doesn't need an explanation anymore. When Job sees how just God is, he doesn't need vindication anymore. Like he's healed. In this encounter with God, without any explanation ever being given to Job, Job is healed. He is healed of his need for an explanation. He is healed of his need to vindicate himself in some way, to somehow stand before God and say, I am worthy. Somehow stand before God and say, I am righteous. I am good. He no longer, he is healed from the need to vindicate himself. It's interesting. There is this uh, question that God asked, look at it again in, in chapter 40. Would you condemn me to justify yourself? And not only is it reminding Job that he has no need any longer to try to vindicate himself. He has encountered the just and righteous God who has said, you don't need Job to vindicate yourself. And so not only does he not need to try and vindicate himself, this statement, would you condemn me to justify yourself, is also a prophetic declaration of the gospel. Because when Jesus went to the cross, that's exactly what happened. Think about it. He was condemned. Jesus was condemned. Why? So that we could be justified. Jesus was condemned so that you could be justified, so that I could be justified. Our sins were placed on his shoulders and he paid the price for our sins. He was condemned so that we could be justified, which means that just like Job, we don't need to try to vindicate ourselves before God. We don't need to somehow try to earn our salvation. We don't need to, some to somehow need to be able to stand before God and say, I measure up. Let me in. I'm good enough. I've worked hard enough. I've accomplished enough for you. I've lived a good enough life. We can let that go. We do not need to vindicate ourselves. We are set free from the need of vindicating ourselves. We are vindicated by the righteousness of Christ. When you realize what's happening here, you realize that the message that we are hearing, this prophetic message of the gospel, is that we don't have to be vindicated by our own righteousness, 
Our own righteousness could never vindicate us. We are vindicated by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen and amen for that? Two things as we wrap up this study. It's been a great study. First, as terrible as his friends were to Job, when he was going through all the stuff that he was going through, Job actually ends up forgiving them. Now, you don't realize it sometimes because we get caught up in the judgment that God places on the friends because he basically lets them have it. Um, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, "I'm, I'm angry with you. I'm angry with you guys. I'm not angry with Job. I'm angry with you and your two friends. Because you have not spoken. I bet, I bet uh, Eliphaz in this poem was saying, can, can you talk to my two friends too? Like, why, why are you just addressing me right now? But God is addressing him. Because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls, seven rams, go to my servant Job, and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. He will pray for you and he will, and I will accept his prayer for you. He's talking about forgiveness there. He's talking about the extension of grace there. Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not Deal with you according to your folly. That Job will forgive you and I will forgive you. I will not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Nehemathite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer for his friends. Some of you have some friends that probably let you down in some way when you were going through some really, really hard stuff. Maybe they said things that were insensitive. Maybe they were well-meaning things, but they hurt. They cut to the bone. They were not helpful. Or maybe they were friends that you thought were closer than, than what they were during that time, that season. You thought they would be there more, you thought they would call more, you thought that they would support you more, you thought they would be less judgmental than what they were, whatever it is, that they failed you in some way. And it's really easy um, when we have friends that have let us down in some way, and that's true for all of us at some point, friends let us down to not grow bitter towards our friends. And 
the only way to not grow bitter is to do what God tells Job to do. Job, I want you to forgive your friends. I want you to pray for your friends. In praying for them, forgive them, and I'll forgive them as well. And it's that act of grace and that act of forgiveness that actually sets us free. Not only does it set our friends free, it sets us free. It sets us free from living with this ongoing sense of bitterness because someone that we trusted, someone that we loved, someone that we thought would be there in a certain way and wasn't, let us down. And it's grace, it's forgiveness that allows us to, to be set free from the kind of bitterness that so often consumes us when we've experienced that kind of disappointment. Finally, as Job concludes, we read this. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. And then it lists, if you read the rest of the chapter, it lists all of the ways that the bounty that God gives back to Job and, and, and how um, incredible it is, the provision that he gives, the abundance that he gives. And I've heard some people say that they wish Job actually didn't end this way <laughs> uh, because uh, that's not the way oftentimes life works. Uh, sometimes we, we don't get back twice what we lost. Sometimes we experience a loss that we can never get back twice what we lost. Sometimes we don't live like happily ever after in the sense of like um, there's no woundedness because of the pain. Sometimes the ache in our hearts over what we've lost continues for a really, really long time. But I don't think the ending of Job discounts any of that. Because I think the ending of Job is, not, is, is, is just reminding us of two very important things. One is this. I think it's reminding us that pain is not permanent. And that's hard to believe when you're in the midst of pain. But I think that's one of the things that Job reminds us of and God's reminding us of in this book is that pain is not permanent. That doesn't mean that it, it goes away entirely. It just means that with time, even in the midst of the pain, we can experience joy again. It means that with time, we no longer have to be consumed by the pain. Our life no longer has to revolve around the pain. That with time, God can heal our memories and set us free to live 
life to the full. The way God intended for us to live. So I think it reminds us of that. Pain is not permanent. But I think it also reminds us of this. That God will make everything right again. Everything. That God will make everything right again. That's the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection means that no death is permanent. (laughs) The resurrection means that no failure is final. The resurrection means that no disease is terminal. The resurrection means that every loss can be completely and totally and fully restored. Not just twofold. Not just fourfold. Not just tenfold. But can be restored beyond our wildest imagination. Beyond what we could ever think would be possible. So that's, that's the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of the resurrection that allows us to see God at work in the midst of the most challenging circumstances of life, redeeming, restoring. It's the hope of the resurrection that brings light into the darkest night. It's the hope of the resurrection that allows us to see the final score and know that in the end, God wins. That's the hope of the resurrection. Because we know that our Savior is alive. We know that our Savior is at work. We know that our Savior is risen from the grave. And we know that one day our risen Savior will return and restore everything that has been damaged by the brokenness of sin will restore everything that has been damaged by the brokenness of sin. Our sin, the brokenness of our sin, the brokenness of someone else's sin that impacts us, and the brokenness of just this broken, fallen world that is not the way that God created it to be and it's not the way that God intends it to be and it's not the way that it will be when he returns. That God will, the resurrection means that God will restore all that which has been broken by sin and the devastation of sin in this world. Because our Savior is alive. Our Savior has risen from the grave. God, we are so thankful for what you have done for us. We are so thankful for the witness of Job. We're so thankful for the the grittiness of this narrative. We're so thankful for uh, the ups and downs of 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 the narrative that that so remind us of the realities of of life. And Lord, we pray that 
that as we have journeyed through this book, that we would continue to hear from you, our risen Savior. That we would be set free from things that would would cause us to become bitter, Lord, that we would be set free, that we would experience grace, that we would recognize the fact that we cannot vindicate ourselves and we don't have to because we have been vindicated by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, we give you thanks because you are a God who is bigger than anything that we could possibly imagine. You heal us from our need (laughs) to try to understand everything. You heal us from our need to somehow need to justify ourselves. You heal us from all of that and set us free. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Fairfax Church podcast. You can find more messages like this on our YouTube channel at Fairfax Church or follow us here. If you were blessed by the message and resources provided, feel free to leave us a review.